Hey guys, this is Nathan Cravat, and I am excited to tell you that next week we will be back in the studio for another episode with Brian, JC, and myself. We have enjoyed the sabbatical, but we're fired up to be back in the studio. But today, the Preacher's Kid podcast with John and Eli is going to be unbelievable. We're excited for how the RFP Network stepped up and filled in throughout this, and we hope you've enjoyed it, and I know you have. We've heard from a lot of you guys, but we are so excited about being back in the studio. We've got a lot to talk about. We have missed you. We've missed doing this, but we've really enjoyed time with our family and hitting the pause button for a little while. Today's episode is brought to you by the Bible Missionary Baptist Church in Rockwell, North Carolina, where Pastor Cody Zorn is hosting a King James Bible debate this Saturday between myself and Mitch Canup. This is happening at 1 p.m. I believe the doors to the church are opening up at 11.30. There's going to be a debate for about an hour and a half, an intermission, and then they'll have a question and answer time for about an hour, an hour and a half. So this is going to be an absolutely unbelievable event, and I can't even believe I have the opportunity to do this. I'm excited. I'm excited to represent the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, and I'm excited to engage with Brother Mitch about this very important issue. Hope to see you there this weekend. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. As you know, the RFP men have been on sabbatical through the summer, but what a great time it's been hearing from the RFP fam. The RFP network of podcasts that have filled in each week this summer with some dynamic and engaging, hey, interesting episodes. I've subscribed to, I think, all of the shows because I heard them first right here on the RFP. Hey, my name's John Groves, and no, as far as we know, no relation between me and JC other than just being a part of the family of God, but I am proud to be one of the hosts of the Preacher's Kid podcast. We know that those PK letters certainly do bring quite a bit of pressure, whether you realize it or not. And as a recovering fundamentalist myself, fourth generation preacher's kid with roots all the way back to the very first graduating class of Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri, all the way back to Bob Jones University, Bob Jones College, and the like, I'm proud to be here with you today as a recovering fundamentalist. My heart has always been to the PKs, the preacher's kids, the misunderstood and So today we're going to give you a little taste of what it's like to listen to a PK episode and invite you to subscribe, but especially to let this be a ministry of encouragement and humor for your kids if you are serving in the ministry. So, hey, my name's John Groves, so it's just kind of cool to get to fill in for JC Groves when I say, let's go. You know what makes women stupid is college. Jesus was not a bartender. Hi, man. Two. You have lost your mind. Long-tongued heifers have given me a lot more trouble than heifers wearing breeches. And you know that. Say amen right there. One. Let me tell you something, bozo. They'll be selling frosties in hell for this boy. Put on a pair of pink underwear. Amen. I sucked my thumb till I was 14 years of age. You're listening to the PK Podcast with John Groves and Eli Blevins, where that PK stands for Preacher's Kid, not Perfect Kid. 
This episode is brought to you by the Ficus Forest, growing in the upstairs storage closet and the backstage baptismal changing rooms. These wonders of God's divine plastic design can be strategically placed to hide any unpleasant distraction from congregants' view in any season, platform, or place around your established church facility. They never have to be watered, and bonus, they never have to be dusted. I think that was supposed to read, they never have been dusted. All I know is, we ain't throwing those away. Sister Carol donated those, and she would roll in her grave out back and take her in-memoriam piano back if we ever got rid of those. So it doesn't matter if you like us. The deacon board will strike us should we ever dispense of the ficus. Now let's head over to today's episode with those Preacher's Kids. Welcome back to the Preacher's Kids podcast, and I'm excited to introduce you to one of my mentors and one of my friends. And I've been knowing you for about 10 years or something like that. At least. At least. And I've known about you for even longer than that. I think you've been in ministry like as long as I've been alive or something like that. I think I've been in ministry longer than you've been alive. (laughs) I've been pastoring longer than you've been alive. That's amazing. Well, Brian Edwards is an incredible mentor and friend to me, and he pastors the Hope Church in Danville, Virginia, and leads the Hope Church network of churches that are planting all around the country, especially on what he calls the best coast, which is the East Coast. Always. And you grew up so similar to me, and I think that's why God positioned you to be able to speak into my life. And so I just wanted to open it up for you to share a little bit about your experience growing up. Tell us about your background and your story. All right. First of all, I'm honored to be considered uh, a friend and then to be considered a mentor. That's even a greater honor. And uh, I don't take that responsibility lightly. Although, uh, man, you're doing so many incredible things for God and you've you're set on such a great course. I'm not sure that you need a lot of mentorship uh, at this point, but thank you for uh, for giving me the compliment. Well, uh, I was actually a preacher's kid nine months before I was even born. Uh, I was born into the home of a pastor evangelist. So that meant that we didn't just have church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and then all of the other activities that went on around the church. But then there were all the revival meetings that my dad was preaching. And because I started singing when I was about two years of age, as a matter of fact, my mom and dad have a tape of me somewhere singing uh, when I was about 18 months old. I'm not sure that tape is treasured enough so that they still know where it is, Hmm. but it does exist. And I was doing my best to sing uh, some of the old hymns. And even when I was a little kid, probably two, three, four years old, uh, Maze Jackson, that's a name from the past. Come on. He called me his little buddy, and uh, he would always set me up on the pulpit and get me to sing songs in his revival meetings when we were there. But the fact that we didn't just go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, but we were going to all of those revival meetings, it meant that my preacher's kid experience was next level. Like I hear the preacher's kids who only went to church three times a week, I hear them complain And I'm like, you're total JV. Like, you don't even know you have no right whatsoever to complain. Like, I'm not buying in. No sympathy for me. I don't feel sorry for you at all because, again, we were in church all of the time. And then most of the meetings we were in, they were camp meetings, which meant there wasn't just one sermon per service. 
but there were multiple sermons per service. As a matter of fact, uh, there were a few camp meetings, and we've tried to go back and uh, recollect and count, but there are a few weeks where I think I sat uh, sat in almost 50 sermons a week. That's insane. Oh, my goodness. I remember going to so many of those because I grew up in a a similar vein as you did in the PK experience. And camp meetings meant morning sessions, afternoon sessions, evening sessions, and they would always spiritualize. I remember one preacher in particular would spiritualize the quote from a Michigan baseball player. I can't remember his name exactly. I should for as many times as I heard it. But they would ask him after a game, you know, what do you think? And he'd say, let's play two. And so one camp meeting host would always get up and say, let's preach two. And he would preach two or more at every single service. And I would just sit there going, oh, my goodness, I'm pretty sure I've heard the whole Bible preached this week. Right. Well, the services we were in, I was hearing very little of the Bible preached. (laughs) But... I'm not sure on what level that was child abuse, but I'm sure on some level it was abusive in some way because we were expected to sit quietly, to never move. And uh, my mom, you know, she had that famous quote, uh, you're going to get it after church when I tell your dad. And when she said that, she meant it. And when she told him, uh, it always went down and it was never in my favor. But we were going to all those different revival meetings, and, and, you know, like you just mentioned, we were hearing basically sermon after sermon after sermon. And my favorite part of those as a child was they had what they would call, um, I think they would call it cowbell uh, services. And, and what that meant was they were going to give all of the young preachers a chance to get up and preach, all these guys who had you know, they'd just been called 15 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were going to let them with no study, no preparation, preach their first sermon. And then at the end of your 10 minutes, they would ring the cowbell. And when they did, the next guy would just have to run up and just start preaching. That was wildly entertaining because those guys would be so nervous. They would preach so many things that wasn't even in the Bible. One of my favorite services, John, true story, this guy, he was trying to preach on Samson and Delilah. But he was so nervous, his entire 10 minutes, he preached on Tarzan and Delilah. He called Samson Tarzan the entire time. Didn't even know he was doing it. Everybody was dying laughing. He thought they were just enjoying his sermon. So that was kind of my life, going to those meetings and then being in our church. Very early on, I learned to have a very uh, incorrect, skewed view of sin because sin was anything that disappointed my dad. It wasn't necessarily that it was sinful according to the Scripture. If it disappointed my dad, then I viewed it as sin because I was punished for it. Well, the thing that disappointed my dad was when I I failed before people in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Hmm. So if I talked during church, if during children's church I wiggled around, If during Sunday school I didn't have my Bible open and I talked to the kid who was sitting next to me, um, anything that disappointed my dad. And so what I learned early on was this. Anything I do wrong, people run to my dad. They tell him about it. After they tell him about it, I get punished, which started to breed in me a resentment toward the church. 
I didn't like the church. I mean, after all, I got a whipping basically every time I went. Hmm. And there was expectations being put on me. For example, you know, a deacon who was teaching a Sunday school class, his child would misbehave. Nothing was ever said. But his expectations for me were higher than his expectations for his own child. So I was expected to be this exemplary child. And and that that early on really started to affect the way um, I viewed church. It lasted forever. It happened all the time. And it rep- represented for me people harshly judging me and being willing to go behind my back and criticize me. I'll never forget as a teenager, uh, my dad has apologized for this over and over again, but as a teenager, we were at a youth camp. And uh, that day at the youth camp, my dad came into the room where we were staying because my dad was preaching, we were singing. He came into the room, and from the second he walked through the door, he was ferociously angry. And he, he really punished me. I was saying the whole time, even through my tears, what's going on? What have I done? What, you know, what have I done? I didn't even know what I'd done. Well, what had happened was a lady who was volunteering from one of the churches at the youth camp had told my dad that she saw me in the parking lot kissing a girl. Well, what ended up being realized was my 12-year-old cousin who had gone to the camp with us I walked her to the parking lot of where she was staying, and I think I just gave her a hug or something like that. She was always like my shadow. And this lady from a distance saw it, ran and told my dad that I was being an example, a bad example in front of all of the other kids. And without even getting a chance to plead my case or, or say, you know, what had truly happened, I was, I was immediately in trouble. So my view of the church as a child and then as a teenager became really jaded. And as an older teenager, I really rebelled against all of my mom and dad's rules. I rebelled against the church. And I determined in my heart I didn't want anything to do with that uh, because of the way I'd been treated, my experiences, so th- that was the negative view. Uh, the positive view was uh, my mom and dad were great people. Um, you know, my mom's always been very loving, and, and I know you've been around her before, and, you know, she's nurturing. She's that Southern Belle mom. And um, and then my dad is, has always been in so many ways my hero. I've always been a daddy's boy. Uh, even now I call him multiple times a day, and um, – one of my favorite things to hear is when my dad answers the phone and he sa- he always says, what do you say, bud? I love to hear my dad say that because it lets me know he's on the other end of the line. He's still safe. He's still healthy. He's still well. Um, so growing up, there were also, you know, really good things uh, that I remember. My papa was my hero. Uh, we spent a lot of time at his house. I love the fact that they attended our little country church. And every Sunday we were there, and then throughout the week we were there. My family, uh, the Edwards side of the family, was really, really, really close, and there was a lot of interaction with family, a lot of time with cousins. And then, you know, my dad had his hunting dogs, and he would let me go down the woods with him, and 
hearing the blue ticks run and um, and then you know we would walk in the snow and and just all of these different things he would take me to the river and and we would you know light an old Coleman lantern you probably don't even know what that is but we would go down to the uh, river and uh, we would fish and by the way funny story my dad had bought me a new rod and reel and one night uh, we had our lantern sitting on the uh, bank of the river and some friends had gone along and apparently the light was attracting uh, water moccasins mm. and uh, they'd killed several snakes uh, down where we were fishing on this river and all at once uh, a snake was right by our feet well my daddy had uh, the mental capacity to drop his rod and reel take mine from my hand and he beat the snake with my rod and reel until my new rod broke. And, uh, man, I was so upset. That was so devastating. Forget saving my life. You just broke my rod and reel. But we had, you know, those good times. My daddy loves to fool with horses and different things like that. And, and, um, and you know, we were just always, in a lot of ways, great friends. But then there was that other side of things where, you know, at an early age I started singing. Uh, my voice is gone now. I have more junk in my throat now on a daily basis than a dumpster. But No, nah, you just have that gravitas, you know, that every pastor needs to have, that James Earl Jones-ish thing. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta voice, you know? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. This is called years of acid reflux and preaching and allergies. But, but you know, there was that other side where it was almost like my dad demanded perfection. Like when we were practicing learning a new song, I was given very little space to mess up. Uh, I was expected to run right up and want to sing. And nobody ever asked me, John, nobody ever said, hey, Brian, do you want to spend every day of your life in church? Do you want to grow up in the backseat of a car being hauled from revival to revival where you're expected to sing your very best and never get paid for it? Like nobody ever asked me that. It was imposed on me. And then that represented, for me, my darkest memories. My dad was a great preacher, but because of the circle we were traveling in, I was exposed to all kinds of just outrageous nonsense. Uh, there was so much that was a part of that life that I think there, there were some polar opposites in my life. There were the good moments and then there were the really bad moments. There, there was believing that my mom and dad loved Jesus. There was having very little confidence in the church. So that was kind of the early years of my life. I hope that's what you were, you were hoping that I would share. But there was just, it was basically a contradiction. And I didn't know how to sort all of that out. I didn't know how to figure all of that out. That's so good. You know, I have heard so many PKs in conversation say those exact same words and rehearse some extraordinarily similar stories and memories from their life. And so when I think about this podcast, I also am thinking about some of the parents of PKs that listen for some perspective. I know older PKs that listen for the memories and younger ones that listen for advice. And there's something that you talked about, the little room or the small margin for error. And in my experience, 1 Corinthians 10.31 was a weapon 
Uh, it was an instrument for punishment, that whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God, which meant perfection, because God is perfect, and so if we're doing it to his glory, that means that we need to do it perfectly too. And I grew up with a skewed view of excellence and not understanding what is the difference between Holy Spirit filled and a perfect performance. And still sometimes I struggle with this jumbled mess. So help us a little bit with the theology behind doing things with excellence, but not using excellence as a a tool to inflict damage on one another. Well, you know, we always want to live with excellence. Um, You know, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Um, We live to the glory of God. We're told whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, that we do all for his glory, which, by the way, it's not just eating and drinking. That was just the most common things that would happen on a daily basis that that the Apostle Paul could could pin. You, you eat and drink every day. You don't even think about it. You grab a glass of water. You don't even think about it. You, you swallow some food. You don't even think about it. So in the menial, in what seemingly is meaningless and ordinary, in all of those things, we, we seek to glorify God. I think where the balance comes into play and where often things are out of kilter, I don't think early on I was ever taught that this is for the glory of God. I think I was taught this is for the pleasing of your dad. Mm. This is for the satisfaction of the church. You sit still and you keep your mouth shut because people are watching. And so, John, sin for me, what would have been this definition? Anything I do that makes my daddy look bad, Hmm. regardless of what that was. No one ever sat down and discipled me. Brian, you're living for the glory of God. You were created for the glory of God. You, God has given you the capacity to honor him, to make him look great. Psalm 23 He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's never about our namesake. It's always about his namesake. And and so pursuing excellence, when you understand that it's for the glory of God and that God is a merciful father, that we are perfectly loved, and the thing that casts out fear is perfect love. So on the days I fail, I'm just as loved by God as I am on the days I succeed. Hmm. When when I say, think, and do things that I shouldn't, I'm just as loved by God as when I'm on the platform and I'm mindful of everything I say, everything I sing, and everything I do. I think when we come to grips with the fact that we are perfectly loved by God and we have not been enslaved or bound Um, to live for his honor, but we've been freed to live for his honor. I believe that truly changes our outlook on how we pursue excellence. Absolutely. Our motivation is completely shifted in that moment. Suppose that your dad or mom would have asked you at some point, do you want to do this? 
all of the different things in ministry that you were doing, what do you think your answer would have been back then? I think my answer would have been likely not this much. You know, I wanted to have a normal life. My dad never came to my ball games when I tried to play sports in school. I was never really given the opportunity to play a lot, not because I wasn't as good as other people on the team, but because I missed so many practices and so many games. Um, for the few times I did try to be involved in sports at school, it, it was made clear to me that it was an act of mercy that they were letting me even suit up and and be a part of the game when I could be there. Because, you know, I was constantly missing practices because, well, being on the road and singing, you know, with the family, that came first. I think I would have said not as much because I was really jealous of, of all of my friends. I think growing up because I would hear them talk about what life was like. You know, your dad came home from work and, you know, you were at your house together. Your family was there together. Um, you did things together. You know, for me, my dad was always on the road. We were either on the road with him or he was gone. He was nowhere around. And, you know, John, it was him being gone that led to one of the most devastating things that ever happened in my life and only recently um, is it something that I've even mentioned or started talking about. Um, and that's the fact that at eight years old, um, I was actually abused. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of preachers' kids have experienced that. As a matter of fact, I guarantee there's a lot of preachers' kids that are going to be listening to this podcast. And you were in a situation where you were introduced to, to sexual activity far too early through the means of abuse. Uh, my mom and dad... Uh, would be traveling, and so my dad and mom would leave me with this other family, and um, I was about eight years old. They had a son who I think was probably 20, 21 years old, and that was that was the situation in which I was abused as an eight-year-old. Now think about this. In my mind, that was due to the fact that my dad was gone and because my dad was out serving the church, I was put um, in a horrible situation that has affected me to some degree. I'm 50 now. It's affected me all of my life. Uh, so I definitely would have said not as much. Or can't we just be normal sometimes? I wish there were, there were times that I would have been given this privilege. Uh, but because of my upbringing, I've always said to my daughters, and I've made it clear to our church, my kids are not preacher's kids. My kids are Brian and Denise Edwards' kids, and I just happen to be a preacher. Hmm. And I've told my daughters over and over and over again, you are my children, and I'm not proud of you because of what you do. I'm proud of you because of whose you are. And I've tried to affirm that in them, and I think a lot of that came from my upbringing. And while that doesn't lift all of the 
stereotypes and requests and requirements that some of the people in the church offer, it makes them so much more bearable when you know that you're going to be affirmed and appreciated and taken care of on your parents' end, publicly from the platform and also privately when you get home, even if you mess up. It makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, another thing I've never done is I don't bring the church, um, to reference the work, home with me. I made a decision early on that I wasn't going to talk badly about church in front of my kids, that I wasn't going to talk about everything going on. You know, I'd heard those conversations growing up, and I didn't want them to have a negative view of the church. And so even now, my middle daughter is 20 years old, and, you know, a few weeks ago we were at home, and and she and my 17-year-old just started saying how awesome it is to be a part of the church because, Daddy, it's like a whole nother family. Like we have this whole other family that's so cool and 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 it really there was a satisfaction in me while we were having that conversation because I've protected them from all of the negativity um, because I want them to feel and know that they they have parents they don't just have a pastor and a pastor's wife who make them some kind of pseudo part of of the congregation and and we we lay all of these requirements and obligations on them, and and I don't I don't want them to live like that. Mm-hmm. So you know they're just they're just our kids. So I'm a fourth generation preacher's kid, and I'm in ministry, so that's why I'm a fourth gen. I'm going to be raising preachers' kids. You're a second generation. You're a PK who's now in ministry raising PKs. How do you leave the ministry, the work, the people, all of those different things? at the office, or at the very least outside the house, because I've been told, everybody listening has been told, that being a pastor is a 24-7 job and a 24-7 calling, and you have to always be on call. And I know there are some parts of that that are true, but not at the level that most of our parents have made that true in our home life. So how do we have a home life that is separate from a church life? How do you leave that at home? All right, first of all, uh, my family is my first ministry. Um, I can't be a good pastor at the church if I'm not a good pastor uh, in my home. Second of all, my home and my family, it's a retreat. That's when we get the opportunity to just be family, um, to just hang out together. I've never pushed devotions in our home. What I want to have is an ongoing, continual conversation about God and about how God is a part of life. I get the chance to have those conversations with my kids frequently. As a matter of fact, it's like one big ongoing conversation that we've been having now for years. Uh, The other thing is um, I don't expect my kids to be the leading volunteers among all of the youth. We call that voluntold. Yes. I've given my kids the opportunity to determine whether or not they want to volunteer or not. We've given our, our kids room to find their gifting. As a matter of fact, all of our daughters are faithfully serving in the ministry. All of them. Uh, we have one daughter who's, who's shyer, 
And she's a, an incredible singer, like to the point her voice is ridiculous. And yeah, she's more comfortable on the soundboard, being behind the scenes, helping in children's ministry. We've we've never forced them to do that. Now, our hope is that they're going to serve Jesus. Uh, thankfully, our oldest daughter now is a full-time worship leader, and not because she's my daughter, but she's incredibly gifted at that. And it's obvious she has a calling. As she leads a team of over 20 people. And even more importantly than the music and the singing, uh, the graphics and the vocals, and she has focused on the spiritual health and the spiritual well-being of, of that team. So while I'm excited about all that, we never forced that to be the case. Uh, we gave them room to grow. As a matter of fact, John, this may sound really strange, but we never pushed our children to make a profession of faith. Because I grew up when, you know, service after service, they would scare the life out of you. Mm-hmm. And you know, end up probably I've been saved about 50 times. Right. <laughs> you know, anytime I did anything bad and I was afraid Jesus was coming back and I was going to go to hell, um, I just had to recap salvation just in case. You know, I didn't want my kids to grow up like that. I wanted them to be able to have confidence in their conversion and own their conversion. And so rather than pushing them into that prayer at bedtime when they're five years old so we can baptize them and and the church can say amen or applaud that the pastor's kids at a very early age have been saved, and we can get up and give the speech about how that's going to help them avoid sin in spite of the fact that we know that typically doesn't help them avoid sin. Yeah, I'd just like to say it doesn't. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't. Um, but we we gave them the space to be drawn by the Holy Spirit, and all three of our daughters were saved at different ages. And... Um, at different times. It wasn't when they were small children. We were giving them that space. And so I think I think the answer to your question is we trust God with our kids more than we trust ourselves. Hmm. And we trust that he's sovereign and that he rescues and he redeems and he saves. And preacher's kids aren't, aren't ever going to be perfect. Preacher's kids aren't ever going to be exemplary in every situation. They need to be redeemed and saved just like everyone else on the planet. And no matter how many rules we put in place and how domineering we are, uh, we can't we can't lead them or force them into salvation and that be authentic and legitimate. Sometimes when I'm listening back to these episodes and we've interviewed great people or Eli and I are talking back and forth about things that we experienced. I wish, I think I would have paid every bit of the $2 I made for cleaning the whole church building uh, to anyone who would have shared some of these things with me. I I wish I would have known so many of these things. And I think if I would have been told this or heard this, that I might have tried to influence my parents in a better direction. And you touched on something that I thought was so good, that Christ is an ongoing conversation in your house. And for us, we attempted to do the family altar, you know, (laughs) and the family devotions and family prayer. We attempted to do that for about a year or maybe two. But I'll be honest, it just became another revival service in our own living room that everyone dreaded. 
it was ridiculous because it was just another thing we had to do. Whereas if as a PK, maybe maybe I could have influenced the conversation and talked about the Lord more and caused that to be a thing that we did on the regular rather than just what we did at the church or at that one 15-minute period where we all have to pray out loud and we all have to read scripture and talk about our devotions, which none of us were doing, let's be honest. Right. Um, John, one of the most memorable moments with my dad. You know, one thing about my dad's ministry is he's been known for preaching memorable sermons. I had someone recently who came up to me uh, just to have a conversation they recognized I look enough like my dad now that they recognized that we were related. And they started just sharing this story of how they had heard my dad preach something maybe 15 years ago. And they were able to recall basically the entire sermon, which is amazing. I don't even remember my own sermons 15 minutes after I finished. But my dad preaches memorable sermons. But the most memorable moment I ever had with my dad was when I was a teenager. I was getting sent from school to school, and I'd been to several different schools. And I was going to this really large high school, and um, having some social anxiety was basically the underlying cause, but then there was also my rebellion. And I'd skipped about 18 days of school in a row. And this was a really large public school. So I thought I had a great system set up, and I did it. It, it went really good for about 17 days, and then once they caught it, they started researching. They found out that I hadn't been there in about 18 days. So the school called my dad. Well, when I pulled in the driveway that that day, my dad was setting out on this um, swing that we had. And, uh, you know, it was one of those porch swings, but it was built on a swing, a big wooden swing set. And he was just sitting on the swing, and uh, I pulled up in the driveway, and my dad asked me to come and, and sit down with him. And um, I walked over, and, and he asked the question. He said, how was school today? And I said, oh, it was fine. It was school. And my dad looked over and, and made eye contact with me, and he said, Brian, you're a liar. The school called. You haven't even been to school in 18 days. And then I'm expecting my dad to go off. Right? I'm in big trouble now. But instead, my dad started crying. And he looked at me, and he said, Brian, he said, uh, you may ruin your life. You may rebel against God. You may go against everything we believe. You may, you may reject anything and everything that you've ever heard. You may even ruin your name and mine. He said, but when you go down just as far as you can go, he said, I want you to look beside of you because I'll still be there. Mm. More than any sermon my dad had ever preached, that meant more to me than, than, than anything. As a matter of fact, that was a life-changing moment for me. None of his sermons had changed my life. But that moment, that changed my life. And so I think as preachers, we need to be willing to be real with our, our children. Let's be honest. They know the church face. They know the church smile. They know the church personality and the disposition. If we think that they don't see the difference between 
who we are at home and who we are at church. We're kidding ourselves. So I think the best thing we can do is be real. A little while back, my my daughter, I call her Doodle, uh, she's daddy's girl. She paid me the best compliment I think I've ever received. She said, Daddy, do you know what I love about you most? And I said, what's that, sweetheart? She said, you're the same everywhere. You're the same with everybody. You don't ever change. You're just not fake. And I think we need to be real with our kids. And rather than just devotions or showing them the next deep thing from the Scripture or practicing sermons with them at home, maybe just try having real conversations and vulnerable conversations and being open with our kids about our own weaknesses and our own shortcomings and our own failures. I think that's a lot better parenting strategy. What I hear you saying is sometimes the most spiritual thing you could do is try to not be so spiritual all the time. (laughs) That's a great way to sum that up. (laughs) You know, as we're bringing this episode to a close, I'm always thinking when we're recording about the 14 to 15 year old John, who's looking around for someone to understand looking for someone to talk to because When it comes to being a PK, there are the people you have to deal with, there are the problems, and then there's also some perks. And as a PK, we can alliterate anything. (laughs) That's where that that comes from. But I, I just want you to give a word to that PK that's listening, that is not completely sure what their walk with the Lord. They're not completely sure whether they love the church or hate it. They're kind of in the middle, and they just need somebody who says, I get it, and here's what I understand. Just speak to speak to us for a second. Uh, the first thing I would say is give your parents a break. Your dad's trying. It's, it's a really heavy weight to be under the weight of people's expectations. And then to think about the fact that you're serving God, and one day you're going to stand before him and give an account of everything you've done, your your words said and unsaid, your actions, your good decisions, your bad decisions. You know, in all likelihood, your mom and dad are really, really, really trying. And so give them a break. Also give them a break on this. They really care about the outcome of your life. As a matter of fact, uh, John, God has given me the privilege to pastor thousands of people. We have multiple church locations. And, you know, I live in in a decent house. And I have a decent life. And thankfully, you and I are getting to have this interview in person. And so you'll be able to look into my eyes when I say this. I'd be willing to give up the church that I serve, the pulpit that I preach behind, the online followers that I have, the multiple locations that God has allowed me to be instrumental in planting. I'd be willing to give up the house, the car, the pastor title, the every bit of it, if it meant the eternal well-being of my children. Uh, The other night, um, I went in and I told my youngest daughter, we were talking about how important she is. She's struggling with some, I guess, self-confidence and self-worth issues. And I said, sweetheart, you're more important to me because she was talking about time. Dad, I need more of your time. And I was just telling her, you're important to me than any sermon I've preached. 
any number of people I serve. You're more important to me than my title. You're more important than all that. So I would say to the 13-year-old, maybe realize or try to realize your mom and dad's love for you and for the fact that they genuinely care about your eternal well-being and they probably really don't know what to say or what to do. And sometimes parents panic and they don't always make the best decisions. The last thing I would say is find someone, whether it's a youth pastor or a pastor that you think is cool or whether it's somebody awesome like John Groves, Mm. uh, find somebody that you can talk to and be real about your struggles. Think about it. I was abused at eight years old. I didn't tell anyone that it ever happened until I was about 45 years old. I think you've got to have somebody that you can talk to. You've got to have somebody who can hear you out, somebody who can hear you when you're angry, somebody who can hear you when you're frustrated, when you're confused. You've got to have somebody in your life that um, you open the floodgate and you let them have it and they give you the room to be real. And then you have to have your own relationship with Jesus. The church is Jesus, and your mom and dad's Jesus, and the youth pastor's Jesus, or the other kids, they're Jesus. You've got to have your own Jesus. And your life will never really change until Jesus is real to you. And I was brought up in the church, but I was not really in Christ. There's a big difference in being in the church and being in Christ. And when Jesus became real to me, everything in my life changed. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your T-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.